This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we continue our discussion on innovation in neurosurgery, and I am absolutely honored to be joined uh, with in person by Gary Steinberg. Gary Steinberg um, was the chair of Stanford University's Department of Neurosurgery for 25 years and just recently stepped down probably to do much more interesting things, right? <laughs> in part, yes. <laughs> why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, again, remember, we have people of all stripes, mostly people that are medical school doctors, neurosurgeons themselves, and tell them about how you got started in this field. Uh, sure. Um, I actually got interested in uh, neuroscience and the brain in high school when I took a course uh, at Columbia University as a junior in high school. I got admitted to a program. Interestingly, Rich Ellenbogen, the chair at uh, University of Washington in Seattle, was in the same program as a high school student. And one of the courses I took uh, had to do with a new field known as psychobiology or physiological psychology. There was no such thing as neuroscience then. Scientists worked on the brain or spinal cord um, because they were interested, but they weren't called neuroscientists. And it was a heady time because you remember this was when Hubel and Weasel were discovering how the visual system was constructed. Uh, this was a time when Kluver-Busey syndrome had just been uh, pursued. And um, I was fascinated by the fact that you could actually predict animal and even human behavior based on understanding the physiology uh, and some of the primitive circuitry of, of the brain. And I decided then I wanted to study the brain. I um, was became very interested in uh, the, the mind-brain dualism, Descartism, uh, studied philosophy, psychology. I, I took a bunch of Freudian and Jungian courses at Yale at college, but I thought that wasn't rigorous enough, at least the state of psychiatry then. So I decided to become a neurologist, came to Stanford, and the first rotation I did was in uh, surgery, first clinical rotation, because I knew I didn't want to be a surgeon. Those surgeons had a reputation of being not that smart, just wanted to make a lot of money, just wanted to cut. And um, I did a general surgery rotation with community surgeons. I was taking out gallbladders. And, and I found that um, the surgeons were uh, not only some of the smartest uh, physicians, but they really enjoyed uh, what they were doing. I loved seeing the, the pathology. Uh, and um, I like the surgical uh, approach. I guess I have a surgical mentality. I like more immediate gratification. And at that time in neurology, you really couldn't help that many patients. I mean, now it's more interventional, you know, but uh, I did a rotation on neurosurgery and I was um, hooked. Now, I know JP could talk to you all day now that I've heard that because he was, and I, JP, you're going to, you're going to have to rein yourself in. We're going to have to have Dr. Steinberg back to talk about all those things. It's going to be a five hour um, episode. I feel it. <laughs> but I, I do want to back up a little bit and say that when I started in medical school at Stanford, I wanted to be a dermatologist. Dr. Steinberg, Dr. Stephen Chang had a tremendous influence on me. We were just joking about how I wrote my first paper as a case report under him about moy moy disease. And, and Dr. Steinberg was, I mean, obviously, he is a world-renowned, not only uh, 
cerebrovascular surgeon, but I'll say that many people at USC said that you're one of the true, one of the few true physician scientists in our field. And that, that's a big statement. Um, anyhow, I wanted to, to have you today talk to us because we only have about 25 minutes about something very interesting. And I tell people that, you know, out of the medical school class of Stanford, uh, there's 86 students usually, and about a quarter of them, at least when I went through medical school, don't even practice medicine, right? They, they, they become researchers, they start a company, they work for a hedge fund, whatever. And you've done something very unique in your tenure as the leader of neurosurgery at Stanford, and I'd like for you to share that with us and how you have encouraged and created almost like an incubator reactor for innovation there. That's a great question, Mike. Um, and um, I think one of the first things we did um, while I was chair was expand our faculty from a faculty of five to a faculty of 63, including uh, 25 brilliant uh, basic and translational scientists who were not neurosurgeons, uh, in addition to recruiting uh, a fantastic you know, 35 uh, neurosurgeons, every subspecialty. And I think that's where it starts, is that you've got role models who are innovators and they believe in discovery and pushing the field. So just some quick examples. John Adler, one of my partners, invented the CyberKnife. Uh, in 1990, I had an idea to start the Stanford Stroke Center, which we found, which I actually founded in, in 1991. It was the second stroke center in the United States, and now I think it's fair to say it has one of the best reputations internationally for clinical care, research, and, and training. Uh, we have people like Jamie Henderson, we recruit, I recruited early on, who is a pioneering brain-computer interface. Casey Halperin, who came seven years ago, uh, is now doing the first multi-center trial of stimulating the nucleus accumbens to treat obesity. Uh, so these are all innovators. Odette Harris, another good example, who heads polytrauma at the VA, uh, she is one of the first, uh, and this is recent work, to discover that female vets who suffer severe head trauma uh, recover differently and not as well as male veterans. So, so that's that's all well and good. And, you know, I bleed cardinal red, so I'm Rah rah Stanford all day long, and we all know Stanford is not the Harvard of the West. Harvard is the Stanford of the <laughs> East, and a second-rate one at that. But you know, tell us how you I really feel. feel. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I wanted to focus on this thing because a lot of places will claim to be great neuroscience centers, like Wash U, right, or University of Washington, right? Or but you've created something in the residency program, and as we enter the interview season, we're about to interview all these young people are wanting to train. What you created something unique at Stanford that doesn't exist in any other medical campus in this country that I know of. So, it, as I say, it, it starts with the, with the faculty who are innovators uh, in their own in their own field. In fact, one of our faculty actually won a Nobel Prize um, for discovering how neurotransmitters uh, uh, are secreted. Um, Tom Sudoff, but um, in addition. I think uh, we have a unique position at Stanford. So some of it comes from the fact that we have a school of medicine on the same campus as six other schools in the university on the same campus as two world-class hospitals sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley. So the culture is there. Um, what we did and what I pushed is to incorporate two years of dedicated research. Um, and I think there are unfortunately not too many programs which still do that. And during those years, 
we encouraged our residents to pursue whatever their passion was. So some followed basic science, tra traditional lab bench science. Others got masters in epidemiology or public health. Some uh, went um, to developing countries and pursued global health. Uh, others um, uh, entered our biodesign program, which is something very special at Stanford. This is a program which are, offers fellowships where, um, and we had three residents who entered this. Uh, they are put in a small focus group. They study a problem. They invent a device. They meet with um, faculty from uh, the School of Medicine, scientists, um, from throughout the university, material scientists, physicists, they meet with um, faculty from the law school, the business school, they meet with uh, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And um, that has spurned out um, uh, really creative people. In fact, um, they many of them start companies. Nandan Ladd, who is now at Duke, as one of our faculty and head of the innovation program there, started several companies. I invested some of my personal money in them. <laughs> Uh, one, of, one, of, one of our residents, uh, Anand Viravagu, who's now on faculty at Stanford, uh, did a White House fellowship. So I think um, pushing these residents to really do something that they are, uh, that will inspire them, that they feel strongly about in, in whatever field, as long as it is rigorous and, um, you know, they can become leaders. I mean, we advertise our program. We've, uh, as one where we want to train future leaders. And, and that's a, in a broad sense. They can go into industry, and some of them have. Um, some of our, our, our residents um, who have now become faculty are actually uh, consulting at Neuralink, uh, Elon Musk's um, you know, brain-computer interface company. Um, so so we, you know, we try to develop that in, in our residents. And I'm pleased to say over the last 25 years I was chair, and I graduated uh, 53 residents, 70% have actually gone on to mainstream academics to become leaders and innovators in different, different ways um, at prestigious institutions, including uh, Stanford, Harvard, the Brigham, um, you know, Duke, Penn, Mayo Clinic, Hopkins, um, Mount Sinai in New York, Brown, Cedar sinai in, in LA. So, um, I think we've done a, a pretty good job of, of, of training, you know, future leaders, innovators in their field. Well, Dr. Steinberg, first off, that's a, a great shout out and salute to Anand Viravagu, who's been on the show with us a couple times. We know for when he was in Miami doing a fellowship with Dr. Wang, uh, always happy to speak with him and great to hear his name brought up today. Um, you know, as Dr. Wang suggested, I also, during my undergraduate wasn't I didn't start in a hard science space. I studied psychology, philosophy, classics. And so that's why, again, I could wax poetic and, and go down that rabbit hole with you for hours and hours. But what, what I did notice, and I wanted to come back to that and think more about your background and what led you to introduce those changes to the structure at Stanford and, and introduce that emphasis on creativity and innovation. Because as soon as Dr. Wang asked you, how did you find the desire to do that? How did you find the energy and the drive to make that change? You did what so many great leaders do who have been on this show and we asked similar questions and you immediately externalized. You immediately pointed away from yourself and said, we have a great faculty. We have multiple schools on our campus. We have a great environment. We have a great culture. 
but surely there's something about you, something in your background, in your makeup that pushed you to be the instrument for that change, to construct that faculty with an emphasis on innovation. What do you think it is about the way you think or what you bring to the table that led you to lead Stanford in that direction? I think one of the qualities is uh, I like building programs and uh, maybe I have a talent for interacting well with uh, people of different uh, backgrounds, uh, you know, in terms of diversity, ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, uh, and uh, something that's been very fulfilling for me has being able to, to uh, have a vision uh, for, you know, what I want to create and then implement it. And that changes every five years. Um, I think I'm fortunate enough to, to still have a lot of energy. Uh, in fact, I'm busier than ever, uh, believe it or not, even though I've given up, you know, one of my main jobs as, as, as chair. And um, it, you know, the passion to, uh, to build, uh, create, um, is, is, you know, something that, that still um, keeps me from getting bored. I mean, boredom is the worst thing. So, you know, as long as one has the energy um, to do it, uh, I've always, always felt that, that you should pursue that. And uh, creativity is what's exciting about life. Um, you know, the other thing I'm very proud of and that I really focused on from the very beginning was diversity. Um, and I think in our field, uh, unfortunately, it's still a very male, white, dominated, um, you know, kind of profession. And it's been difficult to change that. I've tried very hard at Stanford. Um, and I think we've done a reasonable job. 30% of our, our faculty, and we have about 63 faculty now, are women or other underrepresented minorities. And 33% of our residents are women or, or uh, other underrepresented minorities. Um, but it's, um, as you suggest, I, I think it's just a desire to, um, you know, to push oneself and push others to achieve, um, you know, the maximum and, and do something different um, that's, that, that's creative and, and may in a little way change the, uh, the world and society. So, Dr. Steinberg, let me ask you a question because a lot of the folks listening to this podcast um, have a creative bent and they're in a particular scenario, right? They're not at Stanford, right? And they could be assistant professors, they could be medical students, or they could be researchers. And they have an idea and they think that this is something that's going to be additive to the progress of humanity. And what I found is that a lot of barriers stand in the way of of getting to something that will be translatable to humans, right? However that exists. And I remember reading that Stanford had the first uh, real system for technology transfer and vetting the Hot Wheels and the, the Barbie doll, I think it was. A lot of the, the common things we use today were invented at Stanford a long time ago. And, and obviously the environment's robust for that. But let's say you're not at Stanford and you are sitting in your lab or sitting in your clinic or sitting at home in your garage and you want to be creative and you want to have an impact. What message do you have for those people? I would say it's not um, solely dependent on your on your environment, and we have an advantage at Stanford in some ways. But uh, I, I think it basically boils down to um, thinking out of the box, um, listening to other people, and that's tough to become a listener. Keeping your mind open, so uh, 
I learn things from the residents constantly. A resident, and I, I, I really um, try to encourage questioning. And um, I would say that of someone who wants to be creative, don't accept dogma, even if it's something that's been accepted for 50 years. I mean, why was Einstein so special? Because he did not accept dogma. Steve Jobs, I mean, you know, these the most creative people we think of. Um, right now I'm listening. I, I finished a biography of Einstein by Walter Isaacson, and I was so uh, motivated. I started listening to an audio book of, of Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci and, and, and his biography of Jobs. What all these people have in common is that they do not accept um, conventional dogma. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, right? To be able to question and think, maybe that's not right. How can we do it differently? So I think that's one of the great um, motivating factors. And the other is um, be creative in whatever field you are passionate about, because then it's not work. It's fun. Well, Dr. Steinberg, um, it, it's interesting. And I love to hear you say that you're now busier than ever. Um, Dr. Wang has a great talk that he gave when I was a medical student at Miami, and it's actually now available on YouTube for any of our listeners called the seven ages of a neurosurgeon, where he kind of goes through the different phases of a career and the goals, the motivations, the impediments at different professional levels. And so I wonder now at this stage of your career, you've stepped down as the chair at Stanford, but as you say, you're still active, you're engaged, you're learning busier than ever. What, what's your current five-year plan? What things are you working on now at this stage of your career, having put the direct leadership of the department behind you? I'm, I'm just curious what kinds of things occupy a mind in your position. Well, one thing is my clinical practice is busier than it's ever been in my life for, for various reasons. I can't explain them all. And I'm really enjoying it. That's why I went into neurosurgery. And I'm doing things. I haven't new things this year. I've done more interposition type of bypasses for complex aneurysms that we didn't used to see um, and we're seeing now because endovascular can't treat them. So uh, that's keeping me busy. We're still um, developing new treatments for Moya Moya and figuring out, for instance, uh, and this is a disease I treat a lot of. We just did our, um, I just did my 2000th and 18th bypass for Moya Moya. Wow. Um, but, but I'm still learning. We're, we're learning that we can use the omentum um, and harvest it laparoscopically and tunnel it through small holes. And for patients who have failed Moya Moya surgeries elsewhere, I can use that. I've done 40 of those now. Um, you know, we're learning uh, some of the how to decrease complications and what's, you know, when to treat patients, when to not Moya Moya. Where um, I've gotten very interested in virtual reality and augmented reality. And in fact, in another hour and a half, I'm giving a dinner talk about this. And this has transformed for, uh, for surgery, much like some of the, the uh, developments in endovascular have transformed endovascular. We can now visualize and navigate in ways we never could dream of uh, previously, which um, makes it safer for patients. It improves patient satisfaction um, and is, is, is a, a leap for, for training. This, the whole 3D virtual reality, we have a simulation center that I started at Stanford. Um, I, the research is taken off. I'm, I have two R1, NIH R01 grants and R21, and I just got a $12 million CIRM grant to uh, start a, a stem cell therapy 
Um, and this is something we started in my lab 21 years ago. We developed an embryonic-derived neural stem cell. It took me 21 years and $36 million in grants and philanthropy to get FDA approval. And we treated first in human uh, patient two weeks ago, transplanting stem cells from my lab into the brain of a chronic stroke patient. And we're doing another one in two weeks. So this is something, again, I'm passionate about and it's occupying time. I get eight hours sleep a night now and I exercise regularly, which is something that I kind of gave up on for, for many years. Um, and I'm actually enjoying that. I see my wife not just Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, but I get home Monday and Thursday now for dinner. And um, I started playing trumpet again, and that was tough to get back into shape, and piano and tennis. So um, I saw my granddaughter here at the meeting because my son, who's a neurosurgeon, is at the meeting. So I get to see my my family and my, my children and grandchildren more. So lots of things to, to, to pursue in this new chapter. Well, that, that's phenomenal to hear, Dr. Steinberg. And, and in fact, just to keep the, the ties going here, my first instrument was the trumpet as well. So I'm sure. <laughs> Are you still playing? When I can, I, I do more singing and piano and guitar now, but I do have a trumpet. I live in an apartment, though, so the, the neighbors uh, protest whenever I try to break it out. It's tough because it's a muscle. And it took me, after laying off for 20 years, four months to get into decent. In fact, I started practicing. My wife said, could you go out into the garage yeah. practice? Now she lets me in the house. I've gotten a little better. So and, and the lips are the first thing to go. The, um, the embouchure. I, had yeah. to, I used to have to play an hour a day to keep it in shape. Well, see, now, and, and Dr. Wang warned everyone we were going to go down some rabbit hole. I bet he never thought it would be trumpet. But that's, a, <laughs> that's beautiful to hear just at the drop of a hat like that. You could just rattle off an a, a endless list of things that are still keeping you occupied. And that's why, as I said before, you immediately pointed to your surroundings and your team. But I think there really is something about the individual that drives such a community of create, uh, creativity and innovation and leadership. And so I wonder, we, we, had, we asked you to speak towards someone who's not in such a nurturing environment but trying to find some outlet for their creativity, some outlet for innovation. I wonder then if, if we could tweak that a little bit. And as we wrap up this conversation, speak maybe if you could, not to, to someone struggling to find an outlet for their own creativity, but maybe someone who wants to follow in your footsteps and wants to change their environment and become that leader who transforms their community, transforms their department into the place that is nurturing you know, kind of different from trying to find their own path of innovation. What advice could you offer to someone who's trying to make the place where they live and work more fertile soil for innovation? Yeah, that's a terrific uh, question also, JP. Um, so uh, nowadays, no matter where you are, you're not limited uh, so much by your environment because of the power of the internet and social media. So that's one thing I would say is that you can connect with people in ways we never could dream of before. Look what's happened during the last year and a half of COVID. I mean, one of the advantages is we reach many more people through these virtual presentations, right? Uh, and, and people can attend even if they're not there in person, they could be across the world. So that's one way. And then thinking about how you become a leader and some of the lessons I've learned, which is pertinent, I think, to your question is, um, I think that, you know, once you have a vision, I think you then need to think about how you're going to implement it. 
And that means, as I mentioned before, you've got to listen to other people and get input and not talk too much yourself. And that's hard to do. Um, that advice was given to me when I was videotaped at my first um, uh, clinic encounter with, a, uh, with an actor patient. And my mentor said, God, that was really good. You did, you did everything right, but you talked too much. So become a good listener. And then you need to also decide um, about compromising. So you may have a vision, but um, you know, you're not always going to be able to implement everything you want. Life is about compromise. And I learned that quickly when um, I found I, that the hospital administrators became my best friends. Um, you're not going to always get everything you want, and you've got to decide what are the most important things. I think also you've got to not get discouraged um, if your ideas are um, are not adopted immediately. Um, and then you've got to develop thick skin, which means um, not everybody is going to like you or your ideas. People are going to uh, be jealous when you take leadership roles. Uh, people are going to have their own agenda. Uh, and... Um, you know, you do the best you can and you learn from your mistakes um, and don't be afraid to ask for help um, when you're in this process of building programs and becoming a leader. Uh, early on, I went to our, the, the vice dean when I had a particularly difficult personnel problem who helped, helped me get through that. And that's a sign of strength, not weakness. Uh, so, you know, these are some of the things that, that, that I think uh, you need to consider as you're as you're becoming a leader, and maybe most importantly, is that um, you have to live off reflected glory. So it can't all be about you anymore if you're going to build a team. And when you do that, you've got to learn to delegate. One of the real failures I see in leaders, and I've even seen it in our deans at Stanford, is that they micromanage. And that's the tendency. At first, you're going to do things better than everyone else. But if you hire people who are smarter than you, which is what you should be doing, within a short period of time, they'll do it better than you. And that's the only way you can extend yourself. You can't do everything. So you must build a very strong and deep infrastructure. Well, Dr. Steinberg, on behalf of our listeners, I really want to thank you. Um, Mike Puzo, as our listeners know, is my neurosurgical father. But if it wasn't for you and Steve Chang, I would not be a neurosurgeon. So I want to thank you and to share your insights. And we will have you back if you will be willing to, to talk about neurobiology and psychobiology. Happy to. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, guys. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.